Hey, everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor. I'm here with Mark. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like uh, my internal clock is an odometer. It just keeps clicking up. So, uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, how are you feeling? <laughs> that sounds healthy. Uh, I feel like 15,837, and that's all I'm going to say. Okay, that is, that's pretty cryptic. I, <laughs> I warned I you that it was cryptic, and it is cryptic. Okay. Um, so happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. <laughs> your cards your cards in the mail. Yeah. Are you uh celebrating in any particular way? Yeah, yeah. I'm making a fancy dinner tonight. I'm gonna attempt an, an attempt beef Wellington for the first time. Wow. Uh, that's a it, that's a that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. I've did all the prep work, I got everything going. Do you thrive under pressure? Yes. As as far <laughs> as cooking stuff, yeah. Because I, I was a line cook for years and that's like yeah. Pressure, pressure, I forgot, pressure. I forgot that. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> uh, how, how about you? Uh, I'm doing the exact opposite. We're ordering. Ordering, nice. Uh, we're definitely ordering, but we're doing like uh, a pandemic rarity. We haven't really done like sushi very much. Mm. So we're doing like a big fancy sushi bomb. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait. So you were just telling me that you had your uh, 23andMe results. Yes. Was that a Valentine's Day gift? It was not a Valentine's Day gift. It was a Christmas gift. Oh, okay. But, but you, you, get yeah. Yeah, you get so it months I, later. Yeah, you get it months later. I got mine, or uh, my, my girlfriend got me that for my birthday as well. Like, uh, I don't know how long ago, maybe a year we're, ago. but We're in the system. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my swab got rejected the first time. <laughs> Oh my god! Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't do it right. Uh, I was waiting for that. They make yeah. you. They make you spit like so much. Yeah, and yeah. I no bubbles. No bubbles I, either. Yeah, and I don't have. Uh, like literally, the dentist told me like I don't have. Like I have like a certain kind of spit that's not like it's not like flowing all the time. So it yeah, dry mouth. For, it took me forever. It took yeah, me forever. And but. I, yeah, so no surprises on yours though. I had, no. I had a couple, couple I had, things I didn't know about. I'm like, I knew that I was like Irish, and it's like literally like just split between like Ireland and the UK. But there was a bit of a surprise because it was from Cork County, Ireland, which is like southwest Ireland, and then like directly, like directly London. So okay, maybe there was a some sort of genetic pull bringing me there when I lived there. Yeah, possible. The only surprise, you know how everyone has like is waiting to hear that they're like 1% Mongolian from Genghis sure. Khan? Yeah. Mine was I'm like uh like a very like 0.5 something of uh like in Indian, Indian and okay. like Pac Pakistani like somewhere like obviously like deep 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 like <laughs> slightly <Forever>. after Christ yeah. <laughs> or something. <laughs> okay. The yeah, Gilgamesh times maybe that sort of thing but uh my surprise was i had like a really small couple percent scandinavian and like seven oh. percent italian which i had no idea about but mostly Whoa. uh mostly french and german and english right yeah pretty cool though but yeah we are in the system and now they they let us know if we're predisposed yeah. to like a lot of did stuff. You get, did you get a health one? Did you get the health? Uh, one? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, remember, I didn't. Like, what I didn't said. do health because I don't want to know if I'm gonna get like a brain tumor. Oh, I got good genes. Mine just said I'm gonna be fine. <laughs> Your genes say you're good. Yeah. Keep smoking and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, nice. this stuff's interesting. Let us know if you get more uh, more results on that. Yeah, it does update. It like it's like you get new emails when more yeah. people join. Or it's like, yeah, you get new relatives all the time. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, so uh, we're recording on Sunday again. It's our favorite day. Mm -hmm. It's been a little while. Sorry about that. Uh, I do have a new segment, though. New segment. New we segment have a, debut. We should have a soundboard. We don't have a soundboard. Yeah, I wrote drumroll on my script, but I'm not going to do anything. It's going to sound segment. like shit. New segment. Yeah. So it's uh it doesn't have a good name either, but it's called headlines. It's uh it's where I dig into digging into what's been going on in the book world, and I guess we're just gonna uh, get your instant reaction. Okay. Yeah. 
So um, I'll tell you my process later. It's it's pathetic. But <laughs> here's here's one that's uh, tailor made for you, pretty much. Mm. I think it's on the website uh, Ars Technica, maybe, mm-hmm. if I remember right. So the headline is. Netflix acquires the rights to all 22 Redwall books, plans, film, and series. Right. Okay. Yeah, I heard. I saw. I think I saw something, and then I immediately like blocked it out of my memory. Do you know like the full history of me and Redwall, or just like just from what you've said on the show here? Where what did I say about the? You talked about the food that you yeah. really thought was cool, right? Or like really stuck with you, and I don't think you've read all 22 books, but. No, no way. I've read like you, one or two or something. Oh, uh, like, uh, damn. Yeah. You because know? it's like irresistible when you're in like your, you know, I was in sort of like the middle school library. And then it's like there's a book that has like little animals and it has and one of them is holding a sword and it's like <laughs> medieval. And you're like, OK, like drawn right in but yeah. the full, full, full story. And the reason why I said I probably blocked it out after I heard that Netflix is doing Redwall, the full story is that my like interaction with the author's name is Brian Jacks yep. and my interaction with him is actually one of like complete disillusionment uh, because okay. I'm one of those kids who, you know, like every author obviously probably like receives like fan mail and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I sent like fan mail to however I found it out, you know, how like in the back of some book or like a book club thing or something. And of course, my imagination like ran wild that it was like I was I think I had sent him like a story or like I had like ideas or something like that. I can't even <laughs> remember at this point, but I sent him something. And then obviously what the was mice, like, the mice should have guns. Yeah. Like obviously what was a reply back was nice like from his office but it was like you know pre-generated and i remember like what disillusioned me was that it was like you know how you know how in a christmas story when ralphie it's like there's like the he listens to the radio show and then it's an ad yeah at the end like from the secret like message or whatever Mm -hmm. the thing that i got back from him was like a few like promotional materials for like his new book (laughs) which which wasn't a redwall book and i and and i was just like what and then (laughs) and then it was like the end of redwall for me ah yeah that's too bad but maybe you'll like maybe will you watch the show i'm more interested on the filmmaking side of things like what they're gonna do like if they're so, trying, to, trying to do like full cgi or they're gonna do animation or what yeah i think it's animation because here's the kicker uh when from reading just a little bit further into the article the film will be written by over the garden walls patrick McHale, and he was uh involved with early adventure time seasons i believe right, too right, 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 right. and That's uh cool. over the garden wall that uh that little mini series mm-hmm. i liked it a lot it's like very uh it's a good thing to watch around halloween time nice. uh, and it kind of has that sort of red wall or uh, sort of, you know, animals, anthropomorphic kind of. And it's also a Genesis lyric, although I don't yeah. think it's related in any way. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, another thing about this is that it's the first time that someone has acquired the rights to the in- an entire series. Oh, like, so basically they like swept, like not just like book one or whatever. They're like yeah. taking it all. Yep, yep. So it's going to be a, mo- a movie about the first book. In a series, uh, do you know the character Martin the Warrior? No, nah, that's like the main one. Okay, so that's going to be the series. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, there's your first headline. All right, next one. This is from the New York Times, and the headline reads, The First Book That Turned Me On. Mm. So, uh, for Valentine's Day, some titles that first inspired a certain passion, passion in their readers beyond the literary. Ooh. I have one. Really? Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. Is that you talking? I know before you talked about the book covers to Conan, right? Or something exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it's not just the book covers of Conan. Like the, it was like the classic. It's actually kind of interesting to make. Like maybe I'll go into that in one of the podcasts. It's like a good thing that I never thought of before. But some of those Conan books had like. Uh, like a who's who of sort of like younger, like people who went on to become like the big fantasy writers, like Robert Jordan, who wrote the Wheel yeah. of Time series, was like an early Conan guy and stuff. It's almost like a weird, like nostalgic, like yearbook 
of like what you were doing before you became like a bigger writer. Yep. And those Conan books, they have like a formula, you know, it's like, it's very like it basically everything starts with like, he's in like a, like a crappy inn in the middle of nowhere and he gets out and there's like a woman in his bed from the night before. <laughs> and then he starts to learn about some like wolf out there who's causing trouble and then like the third like the resolution like the third act's like structure or whatever is like in the end he's saving either that same woman or another woman yep and they're so grateful that they're <laughs> yep. dtf for formulaic for sure yeah <laughs> but uh so the other books on this list or it was kind of like a, a short thing where they had different i think authors like uh or maybe editors from New York Times, like literature, literature section, mm-hmm. kind of have a little bit of uh, talk a little bit about the the books that uh, spurned that response in them. The first one was uh, like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquerel. I hate that book, but yeah. Uh, Forever by Judy Bloom. Okay. Sula by Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one I hadn't heard of, The Captain's Verses. Uh, so it's like a book of love poems by Pablo Neruda. And I thought it was pretty interesting to see a dude on this list because usually we get stuff like Murakami and his sex <laughs> scenes and stuff like that are like, you know, Horrible. male authors writing about uh, like women's bodies and stuff and just yeah. like the worst ways ever. The worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Neruda is like known as like, oh, he's the most romantic like poet, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, and also the last one on the list, uh, I think this guy was just trying to be funny, but Webster's Dictionary. Uh, <laughs> Roz Chast, who is a cartoonist. So yeah, I think he's Wait, just, but... like, you know, stuck in that way. And he says, here's what he says. The unabridged dictionary we always had open in the living room. Certain words were very interesting. Right. I mean, I think he, I think it's like funny but and a joke but also it's like real like they're like the yeah, very, yeah, yeah like when kids have access to a dictionary or a set of encyclopedia the first thing that's opened is s yeah 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 <laughs> s or v <laughs> or p p <laughs> yep or yeah uh I, I i could see that i mean who i i think that's that's dead with this past few generations i oh, think it's definitely probably dead. our our generation maybe the last but yeah <laughs> the curiosity of the text next uh, headline yeah so the next one's from the wall street journal the mm-hmm. therapeutic value of reading books can help calm and transport you from pandemic stress but many of us are finding it harder to read now here's how and why to get back to it so we've talked about this before when things first kicked off, but right. I think like, you know, fatigue, the uh, COVID fatigue or quarantine fatigue is getting to people and it's definitely getting to me, uh, mm-hmm. showing that we've, you know, this has been, we've got taken a couple of <laughs> weeks off, but uh, yeah, I mean, you got any tips for getting back to it? Not really. It's I, no, I don't have any tips because I'm in the same kind of quag, <laughs> quagmire as anybody else who was an optimistic reader at the beginning of the pandemic. Like we've we've talked on the podcast before about like I hope I break my leg or like I hope I like go to prison <laughs> so that I can read like so much shit. And it's like I guess the human mind just doesn't really work that way because and it's like a disappointing kind of uh, benign fa- fantasy, but. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the only tip that I can really give for like trying to like get into reading during this whole thing is like you do have to remind yourself of that feeling from the beginning where it's sort of like if I'm not doing X, then I could be reading kind of thing. Sure. Like it's interesting to, you know, time is flying at like a really crazy pace and a very distorted kind of pace that we're not used to. But at the same time, if you reflect for a second, I think my most effective thing has been like, you know, complaining with my wife, like, oh, we're not going to the movies or we're not like doing this. And then that thought like triggers like, but we could be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And reading. <laughs> OK, I think my strategy 
my next strategy is going to be to just re maybe reread something that I like like a lot. Mm. So it's not like uh, you know, Uncharted Waters or whatever. Right. That could be a good reminder. Uh, so maybe in the next uh, next episode, we'll I'll or, I'll have something going... like that. Maybe even something that you haven't read, but something that it's like an author where you like know what to expect. Yeah. Like when I like when I read that uh, the last uh, I don't know if it was the last thing I covered or one or two times ago, but the Balzac uh, Eugene Crandet. Yeah, it was like it was so easy to read that because there there wasn't going to really be I mean, there were surprises and everything, but it was like the way that he read. there were no like there's nothing to get you. So it was just like sure. I know that I already love Balzac. Definitely okay. like a that's like a Stephen King vibe too, right? Like when you jump yeah. into a new Stephen King, it's like I know what I'm in for. Yep, yep. <laughs> so that that might be uh that might be a good one to start. So all right, last headline here. And this is funny because I misread it at first and I was like, oh, this is perfect. Uh so let mm-hmm. me read you what I thought it said first. Okay. Here's the headline. Women better at reading than men, new study finds. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh, we got to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Better at reading. I could could see it. And then what what is it actually? (laughs) The real headline was women better at reading minds than men. (laughs) New study finds. Psychologists at the University. Yeah, psychologists at the University of Bath, Cardiff, and London have developed the first ever mind reading questionnaire to assess how well people understand what others are really thinking. Hmm. I would have to agree with on both counts, uh, just from my personal experience with all the men and women that I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's hard to uh, it's hard to say better, better. What's the scale of better? Yeah, I don't know what the metrics are, but maybe just yeah. patience and uh, uh, comprehension. Comprehension. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but, yeah. it's like funny. How like I mean this podcast kind of started in a way too, out of the idea that even if you know readers, because I do know a few people in my life who I who I can like put the stamp on that like I know that they're a reader, but readers don't talk to each other, so no. it's like it's weird. We gotta open that's, that that world yeah, up a little that's bit. That's what this podcast was kind of started out of because I, obviously we were having this massive book conversation but then i know a handful of other people where it's like yeah i know that they read dozens of books every year and they don't really like talk about it the only way to talk about it is to have like some you know like soulful conversation once in a lifetime like over a you know over a whiskey or something but it's yeah. like a frequent thing what if there was like a twitch streamer who just silently read but like the whole screen was just like so you could read along at the same time. Hey, people might be into that. I mean, that's yeah, like the thing. Yeah. That was like a joke. All these things about how we like all the like popular content things, like the idea, you know, it's a generational divide that like mm. Twitch is like, yeah, I watch people play video games. And it's like, what you you watch people play video games, like it's so stupid, like blah, 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 like whatever. But you have to like kind of break down these barriers. And that's actually a joke. What you just mentioned is a joke in Seinfeld when really yeah, when George says, Yeah, you what do you do during the day? Like well, that's this is how we're gonna make our show. And it's like, you what do you do? You eat and you read and like whatever, and then you go to sleep. And then and then the executive says, You read on the show, <laughs> like <laughs> like on TV. Like obviously it wouldn't work for that like that traditional thing, but I could see it working now. Yeah, yeah. Like a first person kind of view, I think would work. I think at Seinfeld, it's like, oh, you're watching him just like from zoomed out, yeah. zoomed out on the couch or whatever, just being quiet. But yeah. I think that could work for a Twitch, just like a kind of where a uh, a head mounted camera or something. It's on the camera, book is on the person's yeah. face, reaction videos, and they just stream like three hours. <gasps> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would keep, it would keep people on track. And yeah, I think you'd have to get the production going as far as like, playing music and stuff and right yeah but okay maybe uh maybe i'll maybe that'll be me yeah content for another day so uh (laughs) yeah that's headlines and since since there's always new headlines that can be a recurring segment and my process my process uh this is very 
it's very <laughs> complex. You go to Google News and you type in book, book. and you see what happens. <laughs> nice. Or you type in reading or nice. you type in reading a book or you type in literature or yeah. books. And it worked. That's, that's what I did. You're getting more access to information than anybody who was relying on the Dewey Decimal System back in the day. Yeah. So kudos. Uh, I, be- I believe we discussed that I'm first. Yeah. Okay. So let me open up a little, a little tab here. So I am doing something that I've actually never done on the podcast before, which is that I am talking to you about a book that I have not finished. Okay. Um, I'm breaking the rules. There are no rules. Really. That's, that's not a rule. Uh, <laughs> it's not really a rule, but I am. There's a lot. There's like a good stuff. There's there's enough to talk about, even though I haven't finished it. And one of the reasons why I meant I'll mention like, oh, I haven't finished it is because this is not. We've talked before about how the ultimate insult is probably getting partway through a book, maybe even a meaty like halfway, like I am with this book, and then stopping. Yeah. Um, but I do not anticipate this that happening. This is like a really good book, and I'm into it. Um, but I want to talk about it because I didn't want to shelve it. I think I've shelved it already like once or twice for the podcast and I didn't want to do it again because it's what it's the world. It's the literary world that I'm living in. Um, so I'm going to take you back to a little country called Russia. Little, <laughs> little, <Okay. Yeah. laughs> a little, a little and little known. I don't know Quaint. if you. I don't know if you've uh, if you ever heard of Russia, um, but we've talked about you know I've I've done the Dostoevsky thing, I've done the Bulgakov thing, and who else did we talk about? Uh, Gagal, Chekhov. Gagal. Yep, Chekhov. Okay, so obviously they've got something going on. Yeah, <laughs> with their with their literature. So I decided to do another person who's actually a, like not the most modern person. Like it's not like these books were published, you know, anytime in our lifetime or anything. But I am talking about a gentleman as per usual with doing, you know, the first time we bring like a new author to the podcast. Maybe I'll talk more about the author himself than the book that I'm reading. So um, can I get to, can I take a guess? Is this a monster? Is this like a thousand pager or whatever? It's not a thousand pager. Okay. No, no. Is, is it Sol- th- is it Solzhenitsyn? Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's the only other Russian author that I have on my bookshelf that I could okay. remember. Just do you think? Do you think he wrote monsters? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Cancer Ward. Cancer Ward is long. That's a huge book. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know Cancer Ward was long. That's one that I started and and was like, okay, I'm not smart enough yet. Let me let me read this later. <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's talk about Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And actually, I don't know if I want to do a test with you right now, since we were talking about Google. You're sitting in front of a computer, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay, so I want you to type in to Google, having never like you know searched before or anything, because I think maybe my search history is corrupted. But having never searched for his name like this specific selling selling before, type in A L E K and tell me what comes up. That's how you start to spell Alex. Okay. Yep. Uh, so I got a, I got a Serbian basketball player uh-huh. and Alexei Archer, is a, who is a film actor. So no Solzhenitsyn? No, not yet. All right, so this is how this that's like a little informative into how Google corrupts because when I type in A L E K, he comes up like immediately. Uh, oh, maybe God. it's like a search history thing, whatever. So I wanted to say that's how famous he he is. So I get I even add well, I'm adding another letter, an S, and it mm-hmm. added a, a Russian Ukrainian mixed martial artist, but no Solzhenitsyn yet. Wow. So this let's add an A. <laughs> okay, I had an A, and there he is. Okay, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. Okay, so who is this guy? He, so, is, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now. Uh, born December 1918, which means that he was born 19 years after Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, he was a Russian novelist, philosopher, historian, short story writer, and political prisoner. So, did you know that about him? Yeah, uh, the one of the books that I've read of his is what's it called? The uh, One Day in the Life the, of Ivan Denisovich. 
Not that one. I have that one. I think I read the uh, something Gulag. The Gulag Archipelago? Yes. You read it? Yes. Oh, I'm in, I'm fascinated. I like, for me, like Solzhenitsyn was like, oh, like you have to go deeper than Dostoevsky to be, have like read him like at all. I mean, I know you've read Dostoevsky as well, but I'm, I'm interested that you've read that you've read that. Yeah, that was in college. That was one of the ones where I was just like, you know, going to used bookstores or Goodwill and being like, oh, this sounds fancy. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, that, or that, this that, sounds that. smart. I'm going to buy this. This is the start of my journey with this because I, I told you, I said on the podcast before, I went to the famous Bart's Books in Ojai, California, which is like an open air bookstore. Like, yep. like everything is, there's no roof, basically. Um, it's like a little courtyard with no roof and all the books are outside. And I found on, you know, the $2, uh, you know, paperback, uh, thing, I found the Solzhenitsyn book called the first circle. Okay. And it's not too hard to guess, but I want to ask you what you think the title means. The first circle. It's sort of obvious. Uh, now that you say that, um, is it like a circle of trust with like the czar? No. Okay. But that is a good guess. Uh, uh, is it? Uh, okay, I'm out. I, I'm not <laughs> sure. It's it's related to the idea that Dante structured hell in like the different oh. circles, like the first uh, circle, the second circle. The if it was called the. Hell. I guess I'm thinking of it as spheres instead of circles. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the first circle. So, I mean, I'll talk a little bit about the book before I get into his life. But one of the main things that you have to know about Solzhenitsyn, like, and me and my wife were talking about this. Uh, you may or may not know that my wife is Russian. But it's it's like every single, like, big famous writer from Russian history who is either is, like, venerated to this day has been to a prison camp, which in itself is fucked up. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, yeah, Dostoevsky, he was in a prison camp. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn, he was in a prison camp. It's like, okay, <laughs> like, stop sending everyone to prison camps. Um, but so that's, like, obviously, like, a huge part of his life. And the first circle is a really interesting kind of, like, read for kind of analyzing that sort of lifestyle first of all social needs is like somebody where it's like if you know anybody who you know has like sort of any connection to any sort of like russian schooling um especially going to school like in the country itself one day in the life of ivan denisovich which he published in 1962 is like one of those things where it's like it's like they've read it in class you know it's like of Less yeah and or something or the great gatsby it's like you were like required to read this sure yeah um like no matter what um so he's like that level of author in russia and obviously he went through like a bunch of things having gone to a prison camp he was like in and out of exile like a few different like you know blah blah, blah all these different things but he's also unique in the sense that Remember how, like, I talked about um, with Yukio Nishima, it's always been a mystery to me. Like, he's boldly, like, homosexual, but very accepted, like, in mm -hmm. his, like, era of history, which I don't know if people were just, like, in denial. Like, I don't know how you can have, like, a closeted, like, book opening or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. about, I don't know what, I, I would really love to, like, talk to somebody from, like, living through Japan in that era, because I don't understand his fame in that context. And Solzhenitsyn kind of has that as well, where it's like, during the Soviet era, he was, you know, like an outcast for speaking up, like he had written private letters to a friend, which were read by, you know, like some central intelligence person criticizing Stalin and that's like how he like ended up in prison the first time and you know all these different things but then still like when the Soviet Union is active during some of his most prolific years you know he publishes One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, Cancer Award in 1968, The First Circle is also in 1968 and he starts to get published like as somebody who is writing these like anti-Soviet books but he's like approved by um, like the Soviet leaders where it's mm -hmm. like, no, like because he was jailed by Stalin, the guy after Stalin is like, no, he's speaking the truth. Like he's cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's like, but what? Like we're under the same like 
like rules but it's not and then and then and, you know his whole life is plagued with like all these different instances of like i tried to publish this book but then you know the mysterious like uh you know society of writers or whatever that's supposed to approve everything said no i have to change it in this way and like <laughs> that's a really weird the union of writers here it is the union of writers in the ussr so it's like that's a weird thing for an author to live through right mm -hmm. and and probably something that we i mean it probably still exists in some weird form not maybe not in russia but in some other countries or something where it's like we couldn't imagine that today like some like american author being like make sure that the trump administration or the biden administration approves your book yeah um it's like what um so yeah, let's talk about the first circle. So the first circle, the reason why it's called the first circle is not some like big mystery, like a, like a plot reveal or anything like that. It's like in the beginning of the book, he basically discusses that if you imagine hell as Dante imagined it, basically crossing the river Styx and then all of these like progressively worse, you know, tortures, basically yeah. like the first circle, the second circle, the third circle, whatever. The first circle is like, you're in prison, but it's not as bad as the other prisons. <laughs> <laughs> so what the type of thing that he's the type of prison he's talking about, which is really cool and related to kind of like his personal history, because um, he was he served in a few like wars for for the USSR, is that um, the plot is basically like they're in the all these prisoners, which are nicknamed Zex, Z-E-K-S, Zex. OK, um, that's like their term for each other. And the other term that they are um, that like to get used to in the book is uh, this weird word. It means Sharashka, Sharashka, uh, which means it's like a type of prison that's like uh, I don't know how to explain it, but basically you're in prison, but it's not that bad in the sense that you have like a job for the uh, that they're you're trying to work on for the USSR. So they don't treat you like a labor camp, but you don't have rights. Yeah, you can't. leave. So, okay. right. So there are like people who work in the prison who are free employees. And there's a lot of different saucy stuff in this book about how the free employees would sometimes like sleep with the prisoners and stuff like that. Um, so there's like kind of good drama like that. Um, and the plot, it, it, it's one of those books that kind of wanders around where it's like, there are main characters. One is named Lev Rubin, who's apparently based off of someone in that Schultzenitsyn actually knew. There's another one named Nertsen, who is, uh, you know, another prisoner, but it's also one of those books where it's like, no matter who gets introduced into the book, there is potential for it to like explore their personal life. So it'll be like, you know, the mean like commander or whatever is in one scene and you're like, okay, I'm going to forget about that guy. And then the next <laughs> chapter is like about how like he, you know, had like, he has unrequited love from like his teenage years <laughs> and you're like, Oh, okay. So it like, it can really kind of like grab on to anyone and, and go in like a lot of different directions, which is cool. And uh, it's got some great writing. It's, it's that classic type of writing that we've talked about a million times where it's like, he's just writing. He seems like sort of normal. And then the end of chapters and short chapters too, which is very readable for a 1960s book. I like um, that. Yeah. Yeah. Short chapters. And, um, you know, it's got all the all the classic novelist stuff of like, wow, he, he really ended that paragraph with a cool thing about how you really think about life. And, you know, it's great. <laughs> um, all that stuff. But it's just like an interesting concept overall because of the idea that there were sort of like these different like levels of like, yes, a lot of the people who are in the book are like their souls are broken and they're like and they're like hardened sort of like people who have been in labor camps and stuff. But mm -hmm. then they all have these different like sort of interesting journeys to get to the point where um, like the main characters, uh, Lev Rubin and Nertsen, they're working on like an early version of speech pattern recognition, sort of like how, you know, how we're so used to now seeing like waveforms like for audio. Yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. So they're working on like a super secret USSR project that has to do that, like even Stalin himself is interested in that has to do with like the idea that like we're going to be able to recognize what people say 
by like <laughs> looking by looking at this like waveform thing, which by now, like with computers is like a ubiquitous truth. Like you can just like, you know, like find what people are saying, have like key phrases, like whatever. I mean, it's just funny. Yep, I took far- a class on I took a class on that in college. Uh, yeah. DSP, digital signal processing. There you go. It's a digital signal process, but this is, you know, analog signal processing where they're like, whatever. But the other like really funny thing that I think, you know, Solzhenitsyn has a sort of like satirical bent to some of his writing is that like what the prisoners are doing is like kind of like total bullshit. Like they are on the bleeding edge of what they can access in terms of like they're sort of like sound nerds, right? Like they're people who are like, yeah, it's like fascinating. But then the, uh, you know, the commanders and the people who are like wanting to deliver this special technology to Stalin are like, so is it going to be ready in like two weeks? And they're like, (laughs) and they're like, this is an art. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We are on like the precipice of something that like has never existed. And we're really just fascinated with like sound (laughs) and we're prisoners, but there's like really good scenes, you know, where like when the commanders come in and they're like, okay, so, now you know he's going to prove to you that this exists or whatever and they have like predetermined phrases that they already know you know like what the person is going to say yeah yeah and they like go into the sound booth and it's like you said this i can tell from this and it's kind of like total bullshit (laughs) um there's actually a term uh if you if anyone has ever like studied russian history there's a term that comes up in the book and it's a good term in life too like just saying in general have you ever heard the the saying a potemkin village yeah i just didn't know what it meant yeah. So, but it me basically a Potemkin village is like the idea. I think it comes from like Russian history where it was like they did back in the days of like czars and stuff. There were like there was like some tour, some historic tour where one of the czars, I think it was maybe even like Catherine or something, was like on like a tour and they built like a fake village in the distance to be like, look, it's thriving. <laughs> like like on the like the Potemkin is a river I think yeah or something like that and yeah and they were like yeah like so in the distance there was literally like a cardboard like village and it's like yeah like it's amazing like we're doing so well and they're like wow <laughs> so now that's like that's obviously like a term for like this is all bullshit kind of thing yeah um the one thing one thing that I will delve into about the first circle that you know from my personal reading history, I definitely had to like kind of get over it. And I think that he does do it really well. But there the is main character, like, the main character has red hair. Actually, special. One, one of the main characters actually does have red hair. <laughs> that I didn't get over that, but it just okay. off. No, he, he's not he's not he's not doesn't have red hair in the sense that it's super red. It's just sort of like faded sure. red, which is okay. Fine. So he doesn't uh, have magic powers and no, he doesn't yeah, have yeah. Powers. all right, cool. But the second thing, which I know you'll think like I just be impressed that I actually like enjoyed it and got over it or whatever. But there are like, there's like so far been like two or three chapters where it's like Stalin is like an actual character. Like we're like in his head and it's like historical fiction kind of. Okay. And I'm like, this is weird. Like it's like, (laughs) it's like, like assuming like Stalin's like thoughts and like all these different things. But there was cool, like really cool little details about the first circle, especially around the chapters surrounding Stalin, which I thought was really cool was that like, I mean, obviously there's some inherent trust going on with the idea that Solzhenitsyn, you know, had experienced the Soviet Union and was writing some different things that were, you know, he has like knowledge of it. So I trust him. I didn't really like re-research it. But the stuff surrounding Stalin is interesting because like there's a lot of people who um you know, want to please Stalin so bad. Like there's so much propaganda and stuff like, I mean, they literally call him like, they refer to him as like the great one and like the the man who has no problems and like stuff like that. (laughs) And uh, there's some really fascinating stuff around the concept of like time and how people like um, would have meetings with Stalin at like four in the morning or like two 30 at night. Because like there's just so much like fake work going on and like fake this and fake that there where it's like if this guy like w- like calls you in and it's like you know one a.m. you go like you like that's what you do yeah and there's like a lot of stuff like that in the book where it's like yeah and then it was just like you know you know he could have gone home to his family or whatever but it was you know it was. You know, you have to fake that you're working so super hard into the middle of the night and it's like such bullshit. (laughs) Um, 
but yeah, so there was like a lot of interesting stuff about that, which I'm sure was definitely true. Um, and yeah, I mean, overall, it's just been like a really good book so far. He, it's interesting to read like a Russian author because, you know, when you read Dostoevsky or you're doing like a Tolstoy or whatever, we always read all these authors that are like from quote unquote a long time ago or maybe like in the 1800s. But, you know, Solzhenitsyn, this is published in 1968. And he writes like it's fun to read a Russian author who's a, who's a respected Russian author, blah, 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 whatever, Nobel Prize, blah, blah, blah. But he writes like it's like snappy, like they're like the very first introduction into the book is like somebody um, being recognized over the speech, recog- like being listened to over the phone. And it's very like spy novelly. Where okay. it's like, oh, like, cool, like, like, there's, like, actual, like, action, and he's, like, trying to warn people that there's, like, political intrigue and, like, all this other stuff. Um, so it was pretty cool. I did, in my research for the book, I'm about to get to my one-star review because I've talked too much. I feel like I've said nothing but said <laughs> – but but spent a ton of time talking about it. <laughs> but um, – in my research for the book, I actually did – I discovered literally this morning – I'm not too bothered by it, um, but I discovered this morning that I'm actually reading a 1968 – like my book isn't from 1968. It's from like – it's like a paperback from the 80s or something. But I'm reading what they – what came to the West in 1968, and they republished a version in 2009 that's like more complete and less like – um, you know, he took some shit out basically probably yeah. because the union of writers. So it would be interesting. I read some of the comparisons online of what's different and it doesn't really seem like too crazy. It's like, instead of warning them about political secrets, they were warning about a nuclear bomb and like mm-hmm. stuff like that. I'm like, okay, like what's the difference? Cold uh, war influence. Or... Cold, yeah, probably. Yeah. Like some different stuff, like just changing sure. some different things. Um, so I would be interested to compare the two versions, but I'll keep going with the 1968 version because that's interesting too. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess like to wrap up kind of disillusionment a little bit with Solzhenitsyn because I learned like he's like this political guy, right? He's like so political and like he's in the prison camps and he's writing and getting his shit published like despite, you know, the USSR or whatever. And then I learned like later in his life, he died in 2008 first of all. So he like, that's lived, crazy. Like, a long life. He was like 90 <laughs> or whatever, but he also approved of Putin and was like, like his bro. And I was like, Ugh. you know, mm. not, not chill. But also what's interesting about that, I think is that the idea that somebody we're, we're constantly saying to ourselves, like, it's not as bad as it was back then. And, I don't know if that's completely true, especially with civil rights, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. you know, but it's like interesting that some, but this guy would live through all this stuff. And then eventually he would just be like, but I think Putin's great and he's doing a great job. And, you know, he's also like 85 at that point. So sure. self, self-preservation, maybe yeah. <laughs> he'd give him like a little bit of a grain of salt that he's, you know, he doesn't have to be, you know, screaming down the Russian leader when he's 85 years old. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I got my one star review here. Uh, it's from Rebecca Goodreads, and she has she's probably the complete opposite reader to me, which I guess I welcome. But she gives the first circle a one star review, and she says, "How dreadfully boring! This book's only interesting chapter is the one narrated by Stalin." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to you, Rebecca, I say I had to cringe through some of the idea that we would assume the inner thoughts of a major political leader. Um, but other than that, the first circle, uh, is really interesting. And it's also, it's cool to like, honestly, as someone who knows a minor amount about, like you said, you took that class, like DSP or whatever. It's interesting. The idea that all these things that we take for granted was, you know, developed by like, like the analog side of things. And uh, and the characters are really cool in the first circle. Uh, you get to you know you get to know them. You get to to know their struggles and and uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Nice. Yep. Yeah. So one day we will tackle the uh, the other ones. Day in the life. Yeah. And maybe someday I'll be, get up the work work up the uh, patience and courage to read uh cancer ward yeah he i think he wrote that when he was in a cancer ward he had cancer it uh it definitely sounded like that from i probably read the first 50 pages mm. 
and uh, it was very dark and yeah. sad. He's supposedly <laughs> my my wife was saying the same thing. He's supposedly some like oh he's really serious like Alexander Schultz needs or whatever. But I, some of the first circle is funny. Some of it is like it's like you know when they do that thing where like the like big scary officers go into the sound booth and stuff and they're like they have like a predetermined like thing that they say it's like I totally know what this waveform says you said this that and the other thing and they're like wow that's amazing yeah that sound uh, that sounds like uh that sounds like a scene from like Top Secret or something yeah yeah it is yeah <laughs> all right yeah sounds good though yep Solzhenitsyn. The first circle. Hell, but not that bad. Okay. So uh, so what I read this week was published in Harper's Magazine in 1994. Ooh. So going along with the theme of the intro, here's the headline. Slash title. <laughs> Ticket to the fair, wherein our reporter gorges himself on corn dogs, gapes at terrifying rides, savors the odor of pigs, exchanges unpleasantries with tattooed carnies and admires the loveliness of cows by David Foster Wallace. Oh, I wish you would let me guess. Damn, sorry. Because I was literally about to be like, this sounds like some sort because he wrote the like, DFW wrote all these essays, like the one where he goes on a cruise, right? Yeah, yeah. It's called uh, a, fun a thing, supposedly a, fun a supposedly thing I'll fun never thing. do again. Yeah, yeah, and consider the lobster and yeah. some other stuff. So this is this uh, is our first foray into DFW. One of yeah, the yeah. that brought us together. This is so. This is a journalistic essay from DFW where they had him attend the Illinois State Fair mm. uh, over like a course of a few days and document his experience. So as you can imagine, it's very much a fish out of water story. Even though he was like born in Illinois, mm-hmm. but uh, or raised there or whatever. But note, okay, note that this is from Harper's Magazine while I read this early section right here. The older ladies behind me tell me they bet I'm here to cover either the auto racing or the pop music. They don't mean it unkindly. I tell them why I'm here, mentioning the magazine's name. They turn toward each other, faces a light. One actually claps her hands to her cheeks. Love the recipes, she says. Adore the recipes, the unofficial historian says. And I'm sort of impelled over to a table of all post-45 females am introduced as on assignment from Harper's Magazine, and everyone looks at one another with star-struck awe and concurs the recipes really are first-rate, top-hole, the living end. One seminal recipe involving amaretto and something called baker's chocolate is being recalled and discussed when a loudspeaker's feedback brings the fair's official press welcome and briefing to order. The briefing is dull. We are less addressed than rhetorically bludgeoned by fair personnel, product spokespeople, and middle, middle management state politicos. The words excited, proud, and opportunity are used a total of 76 times before I get distracted off the count. I've suddenly figured out that all the older ladies I'm at the table with have confused Harper's with Harper's Bazaar. They think I'm sort of some sort of food writer or recipe scout here to maybe vault some of the Midwestern food competition winners into the homemakers big time. It occurs to me that if I allow the Harper's Bazaar Food Scout misunderstanding to persist and circulate, I can eventually show up at the dessert competition tents with my press press credentials, and they'll (laughs) feed me prize-winning desserts until I have to be carried off on a gurney. (laughs) Older ladies in the Midwest can bake. (laughs) Nice. So yeah, pretty cool little misunderstanding. But I mean, it's it's interesting to read some nonfiction from him and like you know mm-hmm. journalistic stuff. So, but I figured we can talk about the elephant in the room first. Uh, DFW is a very divisive figure in the literary world. You either yes. love him or hate him, uh, or hate the people who love him. Exactly, or love <laughs> the people who hate him. Uh, so, Infinite Jess, of course, is a meme. Yep. It's a of a you know long winded pretentious book. We're both you and I are both literature bros for liking him. Mm-hmm. But okay, here's another headline. I got another headline for you from Vice, which is just from October of last year. And you know we talked about this before that some of the discourse online just uh, is cyclical. Mm-hmm. So the headline is: Please leave Infinite Jest alone. The joke about a certain kind of man reading David Foster Wallace's massive 1996 novel has been done to death. Let's all agree to move on. 
and I just want to read another part from it. Anyone who spends too much time on Twitter has likely noticed how the same cultural conversations surface over and over again, how being a gifted kid supposedly leads to being a depressed adult, whether or not it's okay for a millennial to like Steely Dan, how bisexual people all reportedly do the same vague things. These are opinions that have taken over the daily discourse on a seemingly endless loop for the past several years. But the one joke, if you can call it that, that gets under my skin the most essentially boils down to men own copies of the book Infinite Jess. <laughs> but to make David Foster Wallace the poster boy of white male pretension is unfair. Yes, he makes copious use of long-winded footnotes. And yes, his writing is dense and his vocabulary sophisticated. But if you read his essay writing and journalism, you'll know that it's also insightful and dryly hilarious. Big Red Sun, his essay on the porn industry, and a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which he wrote about his experience on a cruise ship, are endlessly entertaining and nuanced pieces of first-person journalism. And so that brings me to his 1994 piece, Get, Getting Away from Already Being Pretty Much Away from It All, an essay. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You're you're totally right. I mean, it, it is the elephant in the room. Like being a DFW fan is sort of like, uh, you know, if you find your fellow fan, it's like it's almost like you can forget about the culture that you just mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, like we can, you know, we can like talk about, you know, what we're saying and not to be, you know. Again, I, I think my theme with like today's podcast, uh, you might as well call it like disillusionment or something. But I, I was a little bit disillusioned, not by the David Foster Wallace, like meme attention, you know, white dude writing era or whatever. Um, but actually by the uh, the biography written about him, I was like, I kind of like stopped reading biographies about authors because I didn't want to know more about them because DFW was like not the nicest dude in the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I feel like if you find like a fellow, per especially someone who's, who at least claims, and then you find out later is actually telling the truth about having read Jess cover to cover, that, yeah. is, that is a good discovery Yeah, because the meme, you know, being like, yeah, I have infinite Jess on my bookshelf, but I've only read 10 pages of it or whatever. But once you really start talking to someone about like, you know, all the different, you know, Eschaton and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and everything about Jest. Like, if someone really knows it cover to cover, that is like, you know, that kind of breaks down the whole thing that we were talking about before about literary barriers. How readers don't really talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the meme, the meme is uh, apparently just this made up. It's, every everything on Twitter is like talking about a guy that doesn't actually exist, as if like he's like all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it's the guy who, I guess, corners you at a party to tell you about the brilliance of David Foster Wallace. Right. Yeah. Uh, but whatever. So in this story, it's, it's kind of, it's hilarious in that it's a self-aware story of a, of like a so-called, you know, self-labeled East coast snob mm -hmm. from someone who is painfully aware that he's an East coast snob, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just marveling at the spectacle of a gigantic state fair with, you know, quote unquote, Walmart people and fried <laughs> everything, tractor pulls and butter sculptures. Nice. But the thing is, you know, from my perspective, we have this stuff on the East Coast as well. Like we're both, you know, native East yeah. Coasters. I can I, name you one right now. Yeah. Would you go to the Four Town Fair? <laughs> no, but I went oh, to the Big man. E. Yeah, I was about to, I was going to mention that. So <laughs> I, I grew e. up going... Going to the Four Town Fair, which is in uh, Summers, Connecticut, mm -hmm. uh, it had all that shit. And yeah, like I, like you just said, plus it, you know, in Western Mass, they have the Big E every year. Mm -hmm. The Big uh, E is like, yeah, I mean, like just like fried dough. My mom used to make fried dough at home. Nice. <laughs> yeah, but the Big E has like, you know, uh, biggest pumpkin competitions. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, there's like livestock and stuff. I knew yeah. a few people. We knew a few people in school and stuff who like they they were like in goat competitions and stuff <laughs> yeah i mean like uh we'd lost when we when we transitioned from middle school to high school we lost like 10 percent of our class like half of them went to tech tech mm -hmm. technical school and then the other half went to like agricultural school mm -hmm. so like we're not too far removed from that but uh yeah 
<laughs> I mean, I kind of like that stuff, but it is funny to think of like this fragile intellectual, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, just experiencing it. And like the thing, it's it's kind of something that I pair with like uh, Nasgard, which is like everything that a lot of people enjoy, like brings horror to them. Like, mm -hmm. like the horrors of, of the grocery <laughs> store, just <laughs> this grotesque, uh, hellscape of like, cons you know, they can, they can like expound on how like scary the DMV is and shit mm -hmm. like that. But like, uh, with, with DFW, like his fiction is one thing, you know, uh that we're familiar with like uh for people who like hate on infinite jest so just you, they should just try reading uh the broom of the system instead i think i like that more mm. uh this is his first book but the, so his fiction is one thing but when he has the go-ahead to like you know write a few paragraphs on his introduction to dip and dots like <laughs> <laughs> the ice cream of the future it's an awesome thing you know yeah. like he's very witty like he's got he always kind of gives you a fresh take on something or like a, an interesting perspective. And if you're I wondering, if there's anyone out there now, you're, this is the whole idea of the FW going to a fair, like on assignment makes me wonder if like, because it's like, you know, DFW was like this late nineties guy, right? Like when did he kill himself? 2000 uh, something. 2008. Or two, yeah. yeah uh, it's like maybe before that, like 2000 yeah. something. But I mean, we're in a different era now. Like it's shocking to say that that was like maybe 20 years ago or close to being 20 years ago. And I, it makes me want this whole conversation is making me wonder if there are still people who go like quote unquote, go out on assignment. I mean, there are there like the, the most recent thing that I can think of is like, there's literary people who would like go out on assignment to like a Trump rally. Yeah. I think that's kind of like, like the article that I just read was from vice. I think vice is kind of like that. Right. Yeah. Which vice has its own broy white problems? But. Sure, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just funny. But if you're wondering, um, uh, DFW thought that Dippin' Dots were a little too Jetsonian to catch on, mm -hmm. and they right. were—they've been consistently the ice cream of the future, but it's already the future. I didn't know that they came out. I mean, I I could remember them from like maybe '97, mm -hmm. but. I guess they were even before that. So it had already been at least three years. Just like uh, something that's in the mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember them from Six Flags, but um So the title the title of this essay, which is Getting Away from Pretty Much Already Being Away from It All, it comes from his observations of like so it's like a summer uh it's a summer event, so it's like hot and sweaty and it's just huge crowds. You know the story, like mm -hmm. And his he developed this theory like throughout and uh, kind of wraps it up at the end that East Coasters like to get away from it all. You know, the hustle and bustle of the city or the traffic and the crowds and too many people, you know, that's what your daily life is. You, you want to your vacation when you vacation, you go somewhere away from these people or, mm -hmm. you know, destination kind of thing. But many Midwesterners uh, from his theory kind of spend their time, his theory and experience kind of spend their time apart from people uh you know if they're farmers or mm -hmm. uh work like workers who don't you know work in this giant like or whatever cubicles or right. shit like that and to many people like the public event like this is an escape mm -hmm. so he says you know the, the state fair the churches and uh high school football games stuff like that mm -hmm. the opposite. but he yeah yeah so many times he references his kind of east coast snobbery <laughs> like this and how he's maybe you know looking down on stuff but it's funny to me because you know what this guy's head is like from reading his fiction so mm -hmm. you kind of feel like you know him a little bit just from that like someone who's just too addicted to details and maybe like like i said like a fragile kind of person mm -hmm. uh and it's kind of a great juxtaposition for him to be at uh at this gr like <laughs> ridiculously large state fair with all this like you know pig pig competitions going on it's kind of like a hunter s thompson like gonzo journalism type piece but yeah but yeah quirky. yeah if i my place my mind goes to a visual place where it's like because 
David Foster Wallace has become the meme with the the writer and the headband and like you know the you know yeah, the whatever bandana. the yeah. bandana. <laughs> it's like I picture the meme in the State Fair, but really I'm sure he was just you know walking around with a ponytail and you know I want I I guess I'm just trying to kind of reconcile it visually. Sure, um, like what he did or did not do. Okay, to, so I uh, try to fit in. Based on that, um, I got some. I got something I wanted to talk about that kind of proves my point of mm-hmm. uh, how I visualized it. But so I got a question first. What's your favorite carnival ride? You know, like the shitty ones that are on trailers and they can mm-hmm. bring them place to place. What's your favorite? Dude, I'm going classic Ferris wheel. Okay. I feel like I feel like you know over time like i definitely would not get on any sort of like teacups or any of the things that like whip you around you know even when i was even when i was a little kid i wasn't like in love with them i was i was the scared kid yeah but then the ferris wheel is like just enough where it's like i'm actually still scared (laughs) on the ferris wheel just but but also you know i'm i'm definitely into the like romantic imagery Uh, okay Um, yeah yeah it 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 has that uh, do would you do you freak out if someone like rocks the the car? Uh, the I think I can handle that. I can handle okay. that, but that's kind of the limit. Yeah, um, I think my favorite is maybe the scrambler, which is one of those whipping things that you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> Looks like an egg beater. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, do you remember the zipper? Vaguely. You should, should look it up right, you should look it up right now real quick. The zipper, mm-hmm. look up zipper carnival ride. But it kind of it's uh it looks like a chainsaw, sort of. Right. And it goes into the air. Like, oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. And so the cars just flip around kind of yeah, violently yeah. and un- mm-hmm. unpredictably. Right. Yeah. So do you what do you think do you think that he wrote it? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. He did not. <laughs> he he instead observed the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. you know uh but no way no chance in hell he was going to ride that thing and that's what i'm talking about where he's like you know he wrote about the horrors of the zipper for like five paragraphs <laughs> right but he was not didn't experience it himself no no which is maybe something to be said hunter s thompson would have gotten on the zipper let's just yeah. put it that way <laughs> um no, the, the, but the friend that he, like okay so he the friend that he went with someone that he kind of grew up with went on the zipper and couldn't get him to go on it with her. <laughs> so he just stood there in horror and like, uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Like uh, the way that he wrote about it. But um, so the zipper was invented by Joseph Brown, 1968. Just then. Uh, Does he go into footnote that? there? No, I just looked that up myself. I was just wanted to see when it came out. So the same vintage as the first circle. Ooh. And so this is our first, you know, dipping our toes into talking about David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure we'll do some more in the future. But definitely I won't your... lie. I won't lie that it's part of the part of the like minor sort of cancel culture influence that we haven't already talked about him. Because yeah. it, it's like you like you said, it's the elephant in the room of like hey, I read books, and then it's like, and I also love David Foster Wallace, and then, like, you know, in su- in certain circles, that can get you, uh, you know, you have the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, yeah. But we've, I think we've proven, this is episode 67 or something, that we <laughs> we have read other books, other things, okay? We have read, we've read a lot of other books. It's <laughs> we've not, proven it. We're not, like, we are not worthy to, like, <laughs> to David Foster Wallace. We We do like him, but it's not yeah. Not gonna, I'm not going to die on that hill. Yeah, exactly. uh, and anyways, if, and and if I could, you know, steal your spotlight for one more for second, it. would be he also wrote a fantastic essay when 9/11 happened. So if you want to read that, it's really fucking good. Yeah, yeah, uh, I have not read that, but I've I've heard. I think I've heard you talk about it. But also, uh, you know, his his uh, commencement speech, "This is water," is really good. Very good. Yep. Yeah. There's other things. And his Charlie Rose interview is also really good. Yeah. Not, not to mention that that's two problematic men in the same room, but uh, what are you going to do? Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, The Pale King rules. Have not read. I've only read Jest and Essays. Oh, I haven't you got to read, read Broom of the System. You got to read that one. Yeah. yeah that's really good. 
Um, but yeah, so this, uh, this is just an essay and, you know, it wasn't popular enough for me to even find a one star review that had words attached to it. <laughs> it was just one star and I'm going to leave it at that, you know, right. like I didn't write anything. So I'll just say that there is a one star review of this in the world Shame by user. Um, let's say I'm sure there's a Mike who, who gave it a one star review <laughs> or a John or like a, yep, Cindy. Nice. And that's it. So, thanks for listening, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. Uh, you can find us every Sunday on Spotify. Or, I said Sunday again. You can find us <laughs> every so often. Every so Spotify, often. SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, Twitter, at SBR the Podcast, SBR the Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, send us stuff, send us a Valentine's Day card. Uh, and yeah, you can, you can gift your significant other, a free subscription to our shows or something. Nice. Send the link. See ya. Later.